0: The Christmas season is filled with expectation. It's filled with expectation. Many of you, much like my wife, have been longing for this season all year long. All year. You had expectations for Christmas lights being hung up, for how you would spend time with family or maybe even the tacky sweater that you would wear to that Christmas party. Others of you maybe have been looking forward to the bling of Christmas, Right? The lights and the bling of Christmas. Maybe you went down to the lighting of the Bentonville Square, or you went to the Christmas parade in Rogers, expecting to see things that would put you in the Christmas spirit, to bring the holiday cheer. These great expectations for the season are one of the reasons why Kristen and I actually went to New York City a couple years ago during Christmas time. We wanted to bring in the season the right way. We wanted to go down to Rockefeller Center to be able to see that giant Christmas tree, the Nutcracker, people ice skating behind us, Saks Fifth Avenue, aglow, all with lights that are synchronized to joy to the world and everything else going on. That's why we wanted to go down there. We wanted to get frozen hot chocolate at Serendipity 3 to commemorate the movie Serendipity. Kid you not, that's like my wife's favorite holiday movie. Shameless plug. But for many, these are the kinds of things, I think, that we come to expect out of the Christmas season, and we'll even travel miles to be able to, to partake and to be able to fulfill these expectations. And yet, in our passage today, Israel also has great expectations. Not the kind of expectations that we have for Christmas, But an even deeper longing and better longing for God to fulfill his promise to save his people from their enemies. A longing for hundreds of years. And in our text, we see that that day of great expectation has dawned for God's people. But how are these expectations going to be fulfilled? How are God's people going to respond? Well, that's where Zechariah's prophecy from the Gospel of Luke comes in. So if you would turn with me to Luke's Gospel, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses, really verses 67 to 79. I'm going to begin reading, though, in verse 57 to give you some context and read all the way up to verse 80. So we've got Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to Through 79, I'm going to begin reading in verse 57 to give some context and read through verse 80. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, They were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives have that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak Praising God, fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, what then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, blessed is the Lord the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness in righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, this song, or this hymn, is really a, a song of praise to God known as the Benedictus, which means blessed, right? Because it begins with the first word right there, which is blessed in verse 68. And this song is really broken up, The song of praise is broken up really into two parts. Interestingly, this song of praise from Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is really only two sentences In the original language. And so the first section right there is in verses 68 to 75. That's the first sentence. And it looks at Jesus' role in God's work of salvation. Jesus' role in God's work of salvation in verses 68 to 75. That's one sentence. And then the second sentence is verses 76 to 79, and it looks at John the Baptist's role in God's work of salvation. So you're looking at Jesus' role and then John the Baptist's role in God's work of salvation. And what we're going to see is that one role is going to serve the other. But both call for the same response. Both are calling for the same response. And the main idea that's being communicated from this text is quite simple. It's very simple. And it's this. Praise God For providing his promised redemption for his people through his son. Very simple. That's why we're here. That is why we're gathered, is to give praise and worship to God for his son. And so praise God for providing his promised redemption for his people through his son. That's the point of the text. And this good news calls for two responses. It calls for two responses which they form our two points. So point number one, the first response is to praise the God of salvation. That's what we're going to see. Zechariah is going to list a whole host of reasons why we ought to praise God for our salvation. So the first response is praise God, praise the God of salvation, verses 68 to 75. And then the second response is to serve the God of salvation, which is verses 76 to 79. So praise the God of salvation and serve the God of salvation. So let's look at point number one, verses 68 to 75. Nine months before we get to our text, the angel Gabriel spoke to a Jewish priest named Zechariah, telling him that his barren wife, Elizabeth, would have a son. But not just any son. Their son, would turn the hearts of God's people back to God and actually prepare for the Lord's arrival. And now, nine months later, at John's birth, Zechariah is enabled by God's spirit to speak God's will, to prophesy to God's people, which we see in verse 67. Now, this is a key turning point in salvation history. It's a key turning point because we learn from Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Joel, who indicated when God would speak ultimately through his people where they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and his people would prophesy, that he would pour out his spirit on his people and they would prophesy. And Luke is telling us, just by verse 67, verse right there, where Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, he's telling us that this moment is big. This is a big moment. Things are coming to fulfillment. But you know what's interesting? Is that the words that come out of Zechariah's mouth are not, praise God for my son John. Is that not fascinating? Those are not the words that come out of Zechariah's mouth. Instead, in verse 68, he's praising God for the gift of the Savior who is Jesus. Jesus. He's praising God for him. Can you imagine this? Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, has been barren for years. And finally, they get to have a son in their old age. You'd think that after all those hard years with the disgrace that Elizabeth had received from others, that the focus of the song would clearly be on their son. But it wasn't. The focus was on the one that John would point to their great expectation, their great priority, wasn't just their son, but more importantly, was who their son would point to. And they knew that. And we see that vocalized right here by Zechariah. Now, I point all of this out to highlight Zechariah's priorities. The most important thing for him wasn't that he just had a son, as amazing as that was. Instead, it was his son's birth and how it played into God's greater work of fulfilling his promises to his people. John's birth, no doubt, was a gift of God, but it was only in service to God's greater gift of providing salvation for his people through his son. Zechariah and Elizabeth had reason to focus on John, but their priority was fixed upon Jesus. And on a day like today, I think it's tempting for us To focus on anything and everything other than the reason that we actually get together on this day in the first place. We can be tempted with that. Does the food taste good? Did he or she like my present? When are we going to get out of this sermon so that we can get back to our family meal after this? Right, We all might be thinking that. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to let a passage like this reorient you and your priorities before the day is done. There is a far greater glory and reason to praise God than just eating food and getting a gift on this day. Far greater reason. Better than each of those gifts is the gift of salvation in God's Son. Food and presents they might sustain you for today, but God's Son is able to give salvation for eternity. And that's why we're gathered. So what better reasons then, do we have to actually praise God? Well, hey, praise God. Zechariah actually gives us a lot of reasons from this text to give praise to God. And he gives us really four primary ones, four ways that we can give praise to God, beginning in verse 68. The first one is to praise God because he has visited his people. The first one is that God has visited his people. We ought to praise God for that. Each of us would be utterly astonished if our favorite athlete or favorite writer, singer, politician, or business entrepreneur just showed up at your door unexpectedly to visit you. You would think yourself not worthy of such a visit. Oh my, why are you here? And then you would be rolling out the red carpet for them to come on in, have a seat. I would love to talk your ear off about a whole lot of things that I'm utterly obsessed about with your life. We would do that. But how much more the God who created those people visiting his own people? That's astonishing. It's been hundreds of years since Israel has heard from God during this time. Maybe wondering to themselves if God has even just given up on them. The spirit of prophecy has ceased. Israel's now feeling the pressure of Roman occupation. They are longing to be delivered from such oppression, and for God to make all those promises to their forefathers become a reality. They want that. And in one day, just out of unexpected mouths, God speaks. And the message that comes out imagine being his people, the message that comes out evokes the Exodus where God visited and redeemed his people. Except this time, God doesn't just visit his people, he actually stays with them. He takes on a human body, he lives among them in the person of Jesus Christ. And that wasn't just for them then. The good news is that it's also for us today. And so friends, maybe some of you came into today with a sense of loneliness, a sense of discouragement in this season, feeling like God has forgotten you, he's overlooked you, that if God cared, things would maybe go differently in your life or would have turned out differently with your life. But the good news for you and I is that God's visit to his people then has ongoing effects for us today. His visit reveals his concern for his covenant people even when it seems like he's given up on his people. Friends, every year Christmas serves as a built in reminder of God's concern for you. It's a built in reminder to the calendar every year of God's concern for you. God cares. God's visit in the flesh wasn't only concerned with providing salvation for his people then, but it was also concerned and serves as a reminder of God's care and concern. For us now. You may feel forgotten today, but today is a reminder that you're not, nor have you ever been forgotten. It's a reminder that you're not. Christmas is a reminder of God's care and concern for you. And so, friend, I want to encourage you to give praise to God because He has not forgotten you, but instead has actually sent His Son for you, which is a reminder that He's not forgotten. However, God didn't just come to check in on his people, but he came to redeem them, which is the second reason we can give praise to God, as Zechariah is highlighting in verses 68 and 69. So not only that God visits his people, but when God visits, he redeems. God redeems his people. Now, redemption is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. The image is really that of a slave market where God delivers a people from slavery, by the payment of a price. There's a redemption price that has to be made in order to redeem someone out of slavery. Now, clearly, for all the Jewish people, this would have called to mind God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? That's the background. And Zechariah picks up on that corporate, that political, that, that physical aspect, even right here, when he speaks of his people being rescued from the hand of their enemies in verse 74. But this salvation is going to be far more than just political and physical. In fact, the, that aspect of salvation is not going to be ultimately realized until Christ's return, until his second coming, when he's going to restore absolutely everything, even the political, the physical, all of it. But as we're going to see in verse 77, this redemption actually has a far greater reach right now than just physical enemies. This is a salvation for the forgiveness of sins. It's ultimately spiritual in nature. And as sinners, we're enslaved to sin. And we deserve God's eternal punishment for our sin. And sadly, we can't actually pay that redemption price. We're unable to pay it to rescue ourselves. But praise God because he actually does. But how does he do it? How does he do it? It says right there in verse 69, what did he do? He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, the horns of an animal symbolize power. They symbolize strength. And the horn of salvation is really just an Old Testament expression that speaks to the Messiah's power to save his people and to protect his people. And so Zechariah is showing us that this salvation is going to come through the Messiah, And that it's actually here. And as we know, it's in Jesus, the son of David. Friends, I think this is a reminder that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves because we're enslaved to our sin. Unable to purchase our redemption because our debt is infinite to God. But the good news is that we're not actually hopeless, are we? We're not hopeless, Because God has not forgotten us, but visited his people and provided redemption by raising up Jesus the Messiah, the horn of salvation, from the house of David to rescue us. He raised him up on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin through his own death. He raised him up from the grave, resurrecting him to conquer sin and death to secure our salvation forever. If Christmas is about anything, Certainly, it's about redemption. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the birth of Christ is about. A redemption that is new on the scenes right here in this text, but it is ages old as God has promised it. Which is the third thing that we see, and we can give praise to God for, is that God fulfills his promises. Not only does he visit his people to redeem his people, but in doing so, he fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises. We see this in verses 72 to 73. Zechariah is not the first one to speak of this salvation, as if like this is just new stuff that he's proclaiming. God spoke of it through the holy prophets, as it says, in ancient times. This is centuries old. He spoke of this salvation back in Genesis 3.15, when a day would come when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He spoke of it in his covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to provide an offspring who would bless the world through him. He spoke of it in his covenant promises to Moses and to David to provide a son to sit on David's throne who would rule forever and who would actually succeed where God's people, Israel, have failed. He would embody the law and fulfill it and through this Messiah God would redeem and rescue his people from their enemies now what's remarkable about all of this is that God didn't fulfill these promises immediately he didn't fulfill these promises immediately these are centuries in the making and yet when Zechariah speaks of God's work in this passage did you notice this All the verbs that he is using are what? They're in the past tense. Just look at the text. Look at it. He is visited. He is provided. He is raised up. He is rescued. Zechariah speaks of this salvation in Christ as if it's already been accomplished. And it's not even happened yet. Why does he do that? Because when God speaks, it's as good as done. When God speaks, it's as good as done. You see, you and I make promises that we cannot keep. Sadly, I know that my daughter's probably sitting right here on the front row thinking, yep, I know that for a fact. My father has not kept every promise to me that he has made. And sadly, that's often in the same day. God makes a promise centuries later and then fulfills it. When God speaks, it's as good as done. The fulfillment of these promises were centuries in the making. And yet the good news for us is that we live on this side of the cross of Christ. Salvation's already been provided. God has already fulfilled his promises to his people through his son. And so when temporary difficulties in this life threaten to make you question God's faithfulness as often as they can do, Remember which side of the cross that you live on. Remember which side of the cross that you live on. If God didn't spare his own son for you, will he not also give you everything that you need until his return for you? Remember that you live on this side of the cross. So we've seen that God visits his people. He redeems his people. He fulfills his promises to his people. But what's the goal of this salvation? What's the goal of this salvation? Right? We've seen what we're saved from, but what are we saved for? What's the goal? Number four, the fourth thing that we can give praise to God for from this text in verses 74 to 75 is that God delivers his people to serve him. God delivers his people to serve Him. Notice in verses 74 and 75 that God keeps his covenant to Abraham in order to grant us to serve him without fear in holiness, in righteousness, in his presence all of our days. Now, you may remember in the story of the Exodus that God redeems his people so that they will worship him, right? So God says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that what? They can worship me. And Pharaoh says, no, no, no. He says, no. But God saves us to serve him. He saves us to serve him. Not the other way around, right? We don't serve God to be saved. But when you're saved from your sin, you now serve and worship a new master. One who paid that redemption price to have you for himself. And that's what redemption is about. God purchasing our freedom from slavery to sin in order to serve and to worship him, a new master. Our new master, rather than sin, is our master. But yet we don't use this freedom as a license to live however we want. Instead, we use it as a means of living how we were created now to live as those redeemed by God, as God created us to live. We use it as a means to live according to how he created us to live. And so freedom is not the goal. Freedom is a means to the goal. Worship is the goal. He purchases our freedom so that we might worship him. Brothers and sisters, you are now free to worship the Lord as you were meant to worship. When God saves you and brings about the new birth in your life, and makes you born again, makes you alive finally, you are now freed up by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually now obey God and freed up to serve him and to give proper worship to him. You've never known that in your entire life outside of Christ. You've never known that. And so don't take that for granted. Use your freedom in Christ to serve him. But before we look at how we actually serve the Lord, remember that all of these points are reasons to praise God. All these points are reasons to praise God. The purpose of the birth of Jesus isn't to provide us with Christmas traditions as great as those are, but they're to praise God for the gift of salvation. That's that's the purpose of the birth of Christ, giving praise to God for the gift of salvation in Christ. The constant refrain that you hear in the gospel of Luke in these very first couple of chapters at the beginning of Luke's gospel is that of praise. When you look at Mary Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, all of them praising God because he has provided what they have been waiting centuries for and expecting for so long for God to provide for them. And yet we live on this side of the cross where it's readily available to us to know the depth and the riches of this salvation that we're reading of right here that they don't even, they've not even experienced yet. That's readily accessible to every single one of you in here. And so praise God for his merciful compassion toward us, for not only visiting us, but then living among us in Jesus, who not only lived among us, but redeemed us from the enemy of sin and death through his own death and resurrection, fulfilling all of God's promises so that we might serve him rather than sin. Praise God for dealing mercifully with you. By shining the light of the gospel in the midst of the darkness that you lived in. In the shadow of death that you dwelled in. And yet has brought the way of peace for you. Friends, these are all the reasons that we can give praise to God. So don't let the various traditions of the day ultimately distract you from the real purpose of why we're even here. It's to give praise to God for a salvation that you and I did not deserve. Praise is not for one day out of the year. It's for all of the year. It's not for one day, but for every day. We praise God for salvation because He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. But how do the saved serve the Savior? That's the second point and our final point that we're going to look at. How do the saved serve the Savior in this passage? Look at verses 76 to 79. So serve the God of salvation, point two. Verses 76 to 79. So now we shift from the past tense of what God has already done in the first section to what God will do through John the Baptist in the second section. So we saw in the last point that one of the purposes of salvation is not only to praise God, but to actually serve God. But what does that mean? Well, what what better example do we get than John the Baptist himself? In verses 76 and 77, look at John's role in those verses, in verses 76 and 77. He's to prepare the way of the Lord by giving God's people knowledge of this salvation, right? It's to tell all of Israel that they need to repent and receive this salvation. That's his role. Now, in one sense, clearly, right, we're not John the Baptist. We are not prophets of the Most High. That is not our role, right? We are not predicted of, from Isaiah 40, that we would come. That's strictly for John the Baptist. His role was for a a unique period in salvation history. He was the last in a long line of prophets to prepare God's people for Jesus. However, Jesus has called us to do a similar thing, though, and that's to give the knowledge of salvation to others in word and deed, to let our light shine before others in word, indeed, and as we've seen in the book of Acts, to what—to preach, to proclaim, to declare the gospel of God's grace. But we can't give to others what we don't know ourselves, right? You can't give somebody what you don't know. And so, the first way that we serve the Lord is by growing in our knowledge of salvation, right? And so, if you're looking at kind of two subpoints, the first one is growing in our knowledge of salvation, in verse seventy-seven. This knowledge of salvation has content. It has content. It consists of the forgiveness of sins. The ultimate enemy in these verses is spiritual and it's personal. It is our sin. It's our sin. The reason we need forgiveness is because our sin is not just a mistake. It's actually a capital offense before God, who is holy and who is righteous, who is the king of creation. That's who we're sinning against every time that we sin. So it's not a mistake, it's a capital offense before him. And because we've committed treason against God by rejecting him as king of our lives and living as if we're the kings and queens of our own lives, we deserve his just punishment for our sins. But the good news is that this story of salvation doesn't end with sin and judgment. This story of salvation does not end with our sin and judgment. That's the whole point of why the Messiah has come. In him, we're given the hope of forgiveness. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be forgiven? To be forgiven means that God commits to graciously pardon your sin against him and no longer counts it against you. God commits to graciously pardon your sin against him and no longer counts it against you. But you can only receive this forgiveness of sins by repenting of your sin, confessing your sin, renouncing your sin, turning away from your sin, and trusting that Jesus' death on the cross actually pays for your sin, that redemption price, the penalty of of that sin by his own death, trusting that his own resurrection has conquered death in sin for you. That's what it looks like. That's how you receive the forgiveness of sins by turning away from your sin, repenting and trusting in Jesus and his death and resurrection to pay for your sins and to give you a life that you cannot earn yourselves. My friend, do you know this salvation? If we can't give what we don't know, do you actually know this salvation? You can tonight. You can know this salvation tonight by turning from your sin, trusting in Christ, that he is the redemption price to pay for the penalty of your sin so that no longer are you an enemy before God and deserve God's wrath, but he actually brings what into your life? Peace. Peace with God. Not only do we need God to deliver us from the hand of our enemies, we need God to deliver us in one sense from God himself, his wrath against us because of our sin. And yet he's done that. You can know this salvation tonight. By turning from your sin and trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. You no longer have to live in darkness and in the shadow of death the rest of your life. You can know light and life from here on out. As you wait expectantly and patiently knowing that the Lord said that he would return for you and he will. Why? Because he died for you and he rose from the grave to prove it. The dawn from on high has visited us and the light of the world is shining to dispel the darkness and to remove the shadow of death. Salvation has finally come for us. Do you know it? Only those who know this salvation can serve the Lord of salvation and be able to give it to others, which is the second thing that we see. Not only do we need to grow in our knowledge of salvation, we also need to give it to others. We need to give the knowledge of salvation. So not only grow in the knowledge of salvation, but give the knowledge of salvation. Look at how Luke describes John the Baptist giving the knowledge of salvation. If you go to Luke chapter 3 and you look at verse 3, it says that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just a couple of verses later in verse 18 of chapter 3, It says that so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Christmas is ready-made for gospel conversations. It's ready-made for it. But so is all of life. So is all of life. We don't have to wait for this time every single year to be able to start declaring that Christ has come and that you can be saved. We can give the knowledge of salvation year-round. Why? Because we have experienced it. We've experienced it as God's people. The majority of people, though, they live in a bad news world. And yet, the majority of us in here, we have light and we have good news to be able to give them in a bad news world. We have good news to tell them. We can guide them in the way of peace. You can't do that by giving them the knowledge of salvation by declaring the gospel to them. right? We may be tempted to think that this good news is only for twice a year, not only for Christmas, but also even on Easter as we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ. But friends, when your life has been transformed from darkness to light, you are going to want to tell others of Christ. You're going to want to let them know of this knowledge of salvation. When you grasp That God has dealt mercifully with you by not giving you what your sins deserve and graciously providing you what you cannot earn yourself. Only then are you going to be willing to give what God has given to you. Think about it. In order to pay that redemption price, you had to have a price that equaled the cost of your sin, how bad your sin really was. You had to have an equal price to match it. The only thing that would match that before God was the blood of his own perfect son. That tells you, one, how bad our situation is in our sin, and yet at the same time, it also teaches you about how merciful our great God is. He has done that. You have much to give people. Opportunities are always around us because darkness surrounds us from the waiter just doing their job at a restaurant to the next-door neighbor who seems to be quirky to you to the coworker who seems utterly disinterested. It may look like a regular invite over for dinner, frequenting a restaurant in order to strike up a conversation regularly to build a relationship. All of this is done in service to our Savior. And one way that we serve him is by giving the knowledge of this salvation to others. We don't hoard it. We're not selfish with it. We want to give it to others. And so, brothers and sisters, are you serving the Lord in this way? In what ways might you need to reposition your life in order to be able to give the knowledge of salvation to others? Friends, praise God for providing us His promised redemption through His Son, Jesus. Serve Him by growing in your knowledge of salvation And giving the knowledge of that salvation, not only on Christmas Day in the little couple hours that you've got left, but for the rest of the year, for the rest of your life. There are a lot of reasons that we can give praise to God. And so let's go to him now and let's praise him for this glorious salvation that he has provided through his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you. What a remarkable, remarkable text. Even just the way that Zechariah just set up this text, of all of the the reasons to be able to give praise to you. Lord, we pray that the inclination, the posture of our own hearts would be that of praise on a day like today. That even if we're battling illness and sickness within our families or even uh, not able to go and visit some, as we had hoped, Lord, we pray that we would remember that there is much that we can give praise to you for today, even when we don't get the things that we were expecting. And yet, Lord, we know that the greatest expectation has been fulfilled through your Son, and we praise you for that. We praise you that you don't just hear and know of your people, but you visit your people, and that you visit them to provide redemption, to raise up a horn of salvation, that this is not just new, though though it's new and happening, but Lord, you have spoken of this for centuries. And Lord, we praise you for that, that you have saved us so that we might serve you, a good and faithful master who always looks after what is best for us. And you know that. Lord, we praise you for all of these things. We pray that we would grow in our knowledge of salvation so that we may better give the knowledge of that salvation to those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, that you would use us as a means of guiding them in the way of peace that they can have in Jesus. So Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.